Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Well, thank you so much for that warm welcome. I, you know, I do this to guest speakers at my church where I, 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 I say so many good things about them that then when they come up to the pulpit, they're feeling like a lot of pressure. So now I'm feeling what that feels like. I thought maybe on my way up I should trip or something, just so you guys can see that I'm, I'm just a human being. Um, it's good to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I always feel honored to come and speak at other churches. It's like being invited to like a family meal and getting an inside look at what a, who a family is. And you all have been just so warm and inviting this morning. Um, I'd love to steal your worship team for a week at my church. Uh, the music was beautiful. Thank you for your leadership. All right. So in, my, in the church that I pastor, we have sort of adopted the tradition of following the liturgical year. So I know that you guys are celebrating the season of Advent. Uh, you may not know, I, you may know this or not, Advent is like the new year for a church. Um, it is, it's when the church calendar turns over and begins again, and Advent is the first season. So I love the liturgical year because it walks us through the story of Jesus, right? It begins with longing, the longing of Advent, the longing that says uh, this world that we live in is not right, our hearts are not right, and we are longing for the coming of a Savior, who can make this world and our hearts new again. So we start with that longing, and then we celebrate in Christmastide the coming of that Savior, that God has come to be with us, and then we walk through Epiphany, the life and ministry of Jesus, and then through Lent, which is the journey to the cross where our Savior gives his life and love for us, and then into Eastertide, where we celebrate the power of heaven bringing life to earth to free us from sin and death, um, and then in Pentecost, we are a new people empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the story of Jesus that we walk through each year. And every time we walk through it, we are shaped again and again by this amazing story of a God who comes to us, who comes to us with love, who comes to us with salvation and makes us new again. And then empowers us to be a part of that story too, right? The giving of the Spirit. So We are now in Advent. Happy New Year, church. Uh, The gospel text for the first Sunday of Advent might be surprising to you. It's a passage about cataclysmic upheaval, impending judgment, and the end of the world as we know it. Mark 13 is what we call an apocalyptic text. What a way to begin the New Year together, right? Happy New Year! Here's an apocalypse. So why begin here? Why begin the church's new year with Mark 13? How could this apocalyptic passage serve as a starting point for the life and work of the church? You know, because apocalyptic literature is so strange and vivid, we sometimes don't know what to do with it. And in fact, we could probably admit that Christians have done a lot of wacky things with apocalyptic literature. Now, I sometimes turned to the apocalyptic passages in the Bible when I was a child to help me stay awake in church when the preacher was too boring. 
In fact, one of the things I miss about our modern churches is that we don't have Bibles in every seat, right? Because that's what I would do as a child that I was just, I'm so bored, I can't even keep my eyes open. And I would flip open the Bible to Revelation and just read the crazy things that are in that book. Now, I didn't know what apocalyptic literature was as a child. I didn't, I didn't even have that language. I didn't know why Revelation was in the Bible. I just knew that that kind of literature was very scary. And my assumption was that that was its purpose, that God put that in the Bible to make us very afraid. I mean, how could the end of the world as we know it be good news? And so I appreciate how one scholar describes passages like Mark 13 and other apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Let's see if I know how to use this right. She says, apocalyptic, the apocalyptic can function as a reminder that not all, who bear, not all can bear to live in the world as it is. Not all can bear to live in the world as it is. It offers the assurance that God is still on the throne, that our endurance will be rewarded, and that justice will prevail. It not only guarantees a final judgment, it insists that this judgment is to be carried out by God and not by human activity. Not all can bear to live in the world as it is. That is why upheaval apocalyptic upheaval is necessary because for a new world to emerge for a just world to emerge for a reconciled world to emerge some things need to be undone and this will involve great upheaval so the word apocalypse means revelation or unveiling The purpose of apocalyptic literature is to reveal a heavenly perspective on earthly circumstances, most often circumstances of crisis and catastrophe. So we always want to receive God's word. We always want to receive the good news that God has for us into the concrete places of our lives and our world. And so this morning, before we dive into the text, I just invite you to think about in your own life or in the things that you're seeing in the world around us this week, what are the crises and catastrophes that you are aware of? What are the crises that you are facing in your life? What are the catastrophes that you see unfolding in our world? And in fact, I just want to invite you to turn to your neighbor and share one of those things. All right, what are some of the things you guys are sharing? Just, uh, just call them out. Yes, the Middle East, the war going on in Gaza and Israel. Yeah. What else? Yeah, the ongoing war in Ukraine, right? Despite uh, people not paying that much attention to it anymore, it's still ongoing. 
What else did you guys share about? I'm sorry? Hunger. Yes, yes. Yeah, hunger in different places of this world. Uh, did anyone share like a personal, a personal crisis or catastrophe? No? Okay. <laughs> All right. So these are the things, you know, whether you're saying them out loud or not, these are the things I want you to hold in your mind as we open the word and go to Mark 13, right? Into our crises and, car- and our catastrophes, Christ is entering in. That's the good news we want to proclaim this morning. Um, so at my church, when I start a sermon, before I pray, I, I have, we have a tradition of just um, blessing one another using these words. Uh, I say, the Lord be with you, and you say, and also with you. So if you would do that with me this morning, it would mean a lot to me. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Living Christ, you are the hope of our weary world. Come now, Lord Jesus, and guide us into the way of hope. As we read a text this morning that speaks of violence in Jerusalem, we are reminded of the war and violence in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Israel. We pray for an end to the loss of lives, an end to the humanitarian crisis. We pray for protection of the most vulnerable, a return of the hostages, and for a new way forward that enables all people to live in true peace. Lord, in your mercy, amen. So this past week I was doing a load of laundry. I still have one of those really old top-loading washers with the agitator column in the center. Does anyone have... Do you all have like the fancy front-loading washers? Or do you have like the old ones like me that open like this? Yeah, so I still have one of those, those old ones. Here's a nice uh, stock photo image of one of these. You know that's not my hand because it's not the right color. <laughs> Plus, I think that this hand looks like too happy to be doing laundry. That, that wouldn't be my hand. Um, and when I, when I opened the top of my laundry machine to move the clothes to the dryer, I saw that the load had gotten twisted and tangled up. Does this ever happen to any of you? Like, how common of an experience is this? Like, you open the washer and it's like, ugh, the bed sheets have just gotten super tangled and twisted up around each other and around the column. And, um, you know, maybe... Uh, here, I have a picture of that, too. Right. <laughs> Maybe you think, like, okay, like, what's the big deal? Like, just pull out the clothes and they just, they'll just untwist themselves. But you would be wrong. Most washing machines on the market today have spin speeds between 1,000 and 1,600 RPM. Okay? So 1,000 times a minute, 1,600 times a minute, they're spinning. And even just the shortest spin cycle lasts about three minutes. So by the time your washer has buzzed, notifying you that this load has been washed, that pile of clothes and towels and bedsheets have already been spun around themselves at least three to 5,000 times. Okay, and that's just for a short spin cycle. Now, it wouldn't be so difficult if the laundry spun around in a tangled mess just once or twice or even just three times. It's that repetition, right? It's the fact that It happens again and again and again and again that leads to a situation where this tangled up mess 
seems beyond untangling. Like, you can't just hold it up and it just sort of unspins itself in the other direction. It's just, it's like hardened into this congealed mess of sheets. Now, I wonder this morning, what are the tangled up messes in our own lives and in our world? What are the crises and the catastrophes that get stuck on repeat, that happen again and again and again, so that now they seem beyond untangling, beyond straightening out? I did this load of laundry. I just spent the week with my family for Thanksgiving, my extended family. And it, <laughs> this, this tangled up mess became like a metaphor for me for what I experienced over Thanksgiving break, right? These cycles of dysfunction in my family that repeat again and again and again and again. And maybe one instance of them, if I were to explain to you what happened, you would say, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, Juliet. And it's not that this happens just once or twice. It's that this, these sorts of things have been happening my whole life. These sorts of things have been happening for multiple generations. These ways that we get stuck on these patterns of interacting that actually keep us from loving each other in the way that we want to. And now they seem beyond untangling, beyond straightening out. Maybe you've experienced these sorts of cycles in your marriage or with your parents. Maybe you feel stuck in one of those cycles right now where it feels just so complicated. Uh, the, the habits, the dysfunctions have been stuck on repeat for too long. Maybe you experience those in your places of work. Perhaps you're experiencing those cycles in your body, right, with an illness, a chronic illness that is wreaking havoc and stress on your body. If we zoom out and we look at the world we've already mentioned, we can see these cycles of catastrophic dysfunctional behavior that pile on top of each other over and over again so that it's not just one iteration of violence, it's many iterations of violence across generations and suddenly we are stuck in a war that no one knows what to do about. It feels impossible to straighten out. The good news this morning that we want to proclaim from Mark 13 is that into those tangled up messes, into those seemingly impossible cycles, into our crises and our catastrophes, Christ enters in. Christ enters into those places. He enters in right where we are. He enters in with power and purpose. And he enters in to hold us near. So I want to read for you the entirety of our passage from Mark 13. I'm sorry, I, I forgot to bring a, a real Bible this morning, so I'm just going to read from my phone. This is Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 37, if you want to follow along. It reads, But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And so beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And so what I say to you all is keep awake. All right, these are like strange words, right? Like what is Jesus talking about here? Let's just admit that. Like there are sometimes we read Jesus' words and we're like, yeah, right on, Jesus. And then there are sometimes you read them and you're like, what? What is happening? So Mark 13 is sometimes called the little apocalypse um, compared to the big apocalypse of Revelation. Um, and remember, the purpose of apocalyptic literature... Oops. Oh, that's spoiling the surprise. The purpose of apocalyptic literature... Let me give that a is to reveal a heavenly perspective on earthly circumstances, most often circumstances of crisis and catastrophe. So that crisis and catastrophe, it can be present or it can be future. And, and today I want us to focus on what it means for Christ to enter into our present crises and catastrophes. Right? I'm not so much wanting to look at this as in the future when that whole end of the world big picture is coming, I'm wanting to talk about the crises and catastrophes that are happening today and what it means for Christ to enter into that. Because Jesus may be speaking about the future end of the world, but he is speaking about a real historic crisis which the city of Jerusalem faced in the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. And that crisis is happening most likely at the time that Mark is writing the gospel. So again, it's both something Jesus predicted in the future, but as Mark was writing this gospel... He was writing about something that was happening already. And we know from historical writings, even outside the Bible, that when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, it came after years of intense, intense violence. There were Jewish rebels and different factions of rebels fighting one another as they tried to fight Rome. Right? So they were all struggling to throw the rule of Rome off of them, But in so doing, they were fighting each other as well because they all disagreed about the right way to do that. And there were battles, there were uh, food supplies for the city that were destroyed in the fighting, and so literally there were children starving in the streets. And the violence of these four to five years culminates in the terrible destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem where the Roman general Titus comes storming in and extinguishes the rebellions and levels almost the entire Jewish temple. And so that is the apocalyptic image we are presented with at the beginning of Advent. Not a far-off future apocalypse, but one that was happening as Mark was writing. Now I say every Advent that uh, Advent passages would make horrible Christmas cards. Um, This year, I made a Christmas card 
using Mark 13. Okay. I actually printed this and gave it to my church. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Merry Christmas. Why do we get this passage at the beginning of the church calendar year? Why do we get this as we're preparing for Christmas? Well, again, the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to speak into our places of crisis and catastrophe. And what it says is that in the midst of these horrible things, in the midst of those tangled up messes in your lives, in your families, in this world, in the midst of all those crises, there is hope. There is hope because alongside of these things, something else is also at work. The purpose of apocalyptic literature is to reveal a heavenly perspective on earthly circumstances. And so on Mark 13, Jesus names what will happen on the earthly level. Wars, famine, suffering, destruction. But in verse 24, he reveals another dimension to the picture. He says, But in those days, in those days, They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Into our crises and into our catastrophes, Christ comes. And so we are challenged to think what is happening for us on the earthly level And alongside of those struggles, alongside of those horrible things, can we open ourselves up to the good news that God is also a part of this picture? Can we open ourselves up to the other dimension of the picture that God is somehow entering in? God is a part of what is happening. This is the good news of Advent. This is what Advent is about. Fleming Rutledge writes, Our great hope is founded not in human history, not in any human development, but in something else, another power, someone else whose reality and sovereign power is independent of human history. And so into our catastrophes and into our human history, into our wars and our sinful entanglements, Christ enters in. And what does he do when he enters in? Well, if you look at verse 24, I want to make three points from this little part of the passage. First, Jesus says, in those days, in those days, you will see the Son of Man coming. Now, notice that Jesus does not say, Um, on the good days, you will see me coming. On the days when things are already going pretty well, that's when you'll see me. No, he says, when the horrific crises are happening, those are the days on which I will come. You see, that is good news. Jesus does not wait for times of peace to show up. He comes even on the very worst of our days. He comes 
when Israel and Gaza are fighting each other. He comes on those days when we get a call from the doctor and we, and we receive that startling diagnosis. He comes to our family holidays where we're just around the table at each other's throats. He comes in those moments where you're struggling with your parents and you just cannot get through another day with them. He doesn't wait for our good days. He enters in even on the very worst of our days. And then when he comes, he comes with great power and glory. In verse 26, he says, You will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. You see, Jesus appears in the midst of our greatest catastrophes and twisted messes, and he doesn't show up powerless and purposeless. He comes with power to make things right. Now, when my mother visits me, she enters into my house with great purpose. She doesn't expect me to lay out the red carpet to welcome her or to make a fuss over her. She gets to work immediately, putting things in their proper place, tackling the jobs I haven't been able to do myself. It's that kind of passion for things being made right. It's that determination and purposefulness offered in love that Christ enters into our places of a catastrophe and seeks to collaborate with anyone who is willing to partner with him and make things right. Now, when I imagine my mother coming into my house with that great zeal and determination, it's not all good, right? <laughs> like, there's also a lot of like, um, like condemnation and judgment, right? So it's like part good news because thank you for putting my house in order, part like, can you not be so critical when you're doing these things? But when Christ enters in, he comes with that zeal, he comes with that passion, he comes with that determination. But instead of bringing judgment, he says, anyone who wants to collaborate with me, like, this is what I'm about, and I welcome your teamwork. I welcome your partnership. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus enters into our lives with. And then lastly, sorry, some of the formatting got off. He will send his angels to gather his chosen. Whereas some apocalyptic texts do focus on destruction and retribution and judgment, Mark 13 is an apocalyptic text that focuses not on destruction, but on Christ's protective presence for those he loves. He will send his angels to gather his chosen. This is the same word, to gather, that Jesus speaks in Matthew 23:37, when he weeps with love and sorrow over the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This is how Jesus chooses to describe his love for us, his posture toward us. It's the compassionate yet fiercely protective love of a mother when we are in pain, when we are suffering. A new study on chickens has uncovered that mother hens have the ability to experience empathy for their chicks. This is surprising because empathy is normally thought of as a human trait. But mother hens have the capacity to feel what their children are feeling. When their chicks are in distress, the mother hens mirror that. 
and they feel that distress with their children. Hens are not only fierce, uh, hens are not only nurturing, they are fiercely protective. Delmer Chilton, a Lutheran pastor and writer, tells the story of going to get eggs from his grandmother's chicken yard one evening and hearing a racket. He writes, A sudden raising of dust, a flurry of feathers and scattering of hens and chickens, much screeching and squawking, and then, just as suddenly, things calmed down, and an old gray hen emerged from the bushes with a large snake in her mouth. Compassionate, gentle, yet fiercely protective. This is the love of a mother, right? This is the way that Jesus is describing his love for us. The compassionate, tender, gentle, fiercely protective love of a mother. When you are experiencing crisis, when you are experiencing pain, you have a mothering God who sees you and wants to be with you, who enters in to hold you close to guard and protect you, to keep you near. That is the good news of Advent. Christ comes with power and purpose into our crises and catastrophes, and he comes to hold us near. So what do we do with this good news? What difference does this make in our lives, in our church, in this world? Well, I want to say two things. First, I think because we have this hope, we name our troubles for what they are. Right? We, we name the crises and the catastrophes happening. We don't hide them. But sometimes as Christians, and I think particularly right, as suburban Asian American Christians, we think that being faithful in the midst of crisis and catastrophe is saying, oh, it's not that bad, right? It's really not that bad. And this is not what Jesus or the biblical writers did in the face of crisis. When something was wrong, they named it as wrong. When there was real trouble or upheaval, they used cosmic language to describe it. I mean, I wonder if we can use these words when things are going poorly in our lives, if we can say, hey, how are you doing this morning? Well, the sun is darkened. The moon does not give its light. The stars are falling from heaven. The skies are shaken. Friends, I hope that you know in our moments of trouble, Scripture gives us permission to cry out. It gives us the language to do that. It gives us poetic language. It's okay to say sometimes, Jesus, my world is shaken. My world is shaken. It's not a weakness to cry out to God in that way. It's an act of hope. It is an act of hope. You see, optimism is looking at something and saying, it's really not that bad. But true hope can look at something horrible and name it for what it is. This is one of the things I've come to love about my church over the years. One of our most beautiful strengths is that at the beginning of our time together, we decided we're not going to be one of those communities where people don't really share how they're doing. We're not going to be one of those happy Christian communities. I mean, sometimes we'll be happy. We do a lot of celebrating. But we're not going to be a place where you can only be a part of us if you can put on a smile every Sunday morning. And when people ask you how you're doing, you say, oh, fine. Very, yeah, very good. We're going to be a place where when things are going wrong in our lives, 
We can share that with each other. And we have encountered many crises and catastrophes in our life together. We have reckoned with the evil of abuse and the work it has done in our lives. We have experienced cancer, untimely deaths, alcoholism, drug addiction, divorces, job loss, depression, intense anxiety. And when we are at our best, we are a community in which those heavy burdens have not been avoided. They have not been kept secret and silent. but They have been named and shared and looked at directly together. Harvest, I encourage you to become that kind of family, right? The kind of place where you can look at one another's darkness and say, we're holding this with you. We don't need to turn away. We can look at this together. And we're doing this because we believe in the power of someone good who is present with us as well, looking at this with us. It's because we have hope that we name our sorrows and our griefs. So because we have hope, we can name our troubles for what they are. And then also, because we have hope, we get to work and we persist in doing good. We persist in cooperating with the power of good that is at work in us and around us. I think that's what Jesus means when he says at the end of our passage, keep awake, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. Right? I don't think Jesus is saying, keep awake, keep alert, like figure out exactly when you think I'm going to return to the earth again. He's saying the way that you keep awake and that you keep alert is by continuing to watch for the ways that I am at work this world and joining in with what I'm doing. You see, we don't allow the evil in this world to lull us to sleep. We do not make peace with the wrong in this world and say, well, that's just how the world is. We keep alert, we keep awake, In the face of crisis, we cooperate with the power of good that now fills this world. A few years ago, oh, I forgot I had all these slides. A few years ago, I read about Dr. Dairon Elizondo Rojas. Dr. Rojas is a medical doctor who had to flee Venezuela after he courageously spoke out against the government there. Uh, the government regime has brought about intense suffering and starvation in Venezuela. Dr. Rojas was threatened. He was prevented from practicing medicine, locked up in a prison, beaten and tortured. Because of the danger to his life, he fled the country to seek asylum in the United States. It was a trek that took him over a month to complete. When he reached our border, though, rather than being granted asylum, he was placed into a camp along with thousands of other asylum seekers, and left there. Now, seeing the desperate need for medical care in the camp, he became the camp's first doctor. He was only 29 at the time. Dr. Rojas is a Christian. When the Mexican government considered moving the camp to a worse place, one which had inadequate water and sanitation, Dr. Rojas had the opportunity to be relocated to a better place, because they valued the medical care he was offering. But Rojas chose to say, stay, saying, these are my people. Where they're sent, I go. Reporters describe the children in the camp and their joyful affection for Dr. Rojas. They run up to him and follow him around, one porter described, like little chicks following their mother hen. 
See, in the face of the crisis and catastrophe in the hopeless context of a refugee camp on the border between two countries who don't want the people in those camps, Dr. Rojas expresses his Christian hope by choosing to do good. He keeps awake by persisting in the good he's able to do and cooperating with a God who is present in those camps. You know, one of my favorite quotes from The Lord of the Rings is spoken by Gandalf to Frodo. You you may remember this moment, any of my Lord of the Rings nerds. Yes. Frodo is feeling overwhelmed and exhausted from the evil they keep encountering, from the nonstop challenges and troubles. And Gandalf acknowledges that, of course, of course Frodo feels this way, right? So do all who meet such times. But, Gandalf says... There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. There are other forces at work in this world besides the will of evil. Harvest, this Advent, let us remember that there are forces at work in this world, other forces besides family dysfunction. There are other forces at work in this world besides greed, besides war, besides prejudice, Besides sickness, there are other forces at work in this world because Christ has entered into it. Christ has entered into it. A good God, a mothering God, has entered into the very worst of our places and joined us. And so this morning we acknowledge that in all our crises and catastrophes, we look up, we wait with hope, we look to the great power of love who chooses to come to us in our pain, chooses to hold us close, and comes with power and purpose to collaborate with us for doing good. As we respond, uh, this is something we do at our church um, where once we've received the good news, we just respond with a simple prayer. And so this morning, the sentence I want to offer you is just this loving Savior into blank. Come, Lord Jesus, and be my hope. Now, you may be praying for something for yourself, in your own life, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, um, or you may be praying a a prayer for the world, uh, but let us turn to the Christ who enters into our places of trouble, and ask for him to be our hope. So we'll do this silently. At at my church, we do do this out loud, but I I don't want to stretch you guys too much this morning, so um, let's just enter into a time of prayer. Lord, we welcome you into all of our places of trouble, um, the places where we feel powerless, places where we are discouraged by the cycles and the tangled up messes that seem just impossible to undo. Would you come? Would you bring your protective presence that holds us close? Would you bring your power and authority to make things right and your desire to collaborate with us, to partner with you in making things new and good? Come, Lord Jesus, and be our hope. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. 
If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.